Okay, we're almost done, huh, with the armor of God. Today will be our last Sunday school in this text. It's really been so good, and I hope that that you've enjoyed it, that you've been able to gather something from it. Um, I know that just even studying this, even for my own benefit, has um, has uh, edified me in, uh, so much. Um, okay, let's go ahead and get started. <clears throat> K-Dub, you want to read for us today? We're going to do, we're, we're in Ephesians 6, 16 through 17. If you would read that for us, it would be great. Amen. Can I quiz you guys? I th- I kind of wanted to do that. The first thing we talked about was uh, having girded your loins with truth. If you could summarize what we said there about girding your loins with truth, what would you say? Pull up your skirt chain and tuck it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a skirt, brother. <clears throat> That's right. Your tunic, your robe, right? Pull it up, stuff it in your belt so you can be ready for war, right? Gird your loins with truth. uh, So so what what did we say that was about, right? That we have been uh, delivered from deception and now stand in the truth as it is in Jesus, right? From the world. And not only this, so um, we we stand and live in a true um, reality, as well as girding our loins with truth, is we said that um, we said that God uh, uh, what's the verse in uh, Psalm fifty one? He desires truth in the inward parts, right? So, truth as a virtue, right? So not only do we do we stand we we, nev- we don't stand in a, in a reality of deception we've been delivered from it we stand in the truth not only this but <clears throat> we walk in the truth right truth is in us and what about the breastplate of righteousness how would you summarize that point what did we talk about protecting your heart, protecting your heart? how how did we say huh obedience, o- obedience. that's right. Amen. Amen. We said obedience. Uh, obedience. I think that's right. And we said practical. We said practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. And what about this last point? Having shod your feet with the gospel of peace. What did we say there? <clears throat> That's right. He has already shod his shoes, right, with his sneakers. Um, what else? <clears throat> right. How about this? They preach the gospel to themselves, and they glory in what Christ has provided them and the cross, which is no condemnation they have shod their feet with the gospel the preparation of the gospel of peace 
they can go into the war, even though Satan is, is combining all manners of attacks on their security, on their identity, touching the very identity and their relationship with Christ. If they go into this war with the father of lies, right, putting on truth, because, because Satan, uh, we are most vulnerable against Satan's attacks when we are living in disobedience, right? We give the devil a foothold when we are, uh, when we are running from God, rebelling against God. That's exactly where he wants, right? Far from being a threat, right? It makes you a target. That's what we said. And they have the preparation of the gospel of peace. They know who they are in Christ. <clears throat> and that peace provides them with uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so getting to our text today. I love this text. It's so good. Uh, in addition to all, verse 16, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In addition to all, right? Paul now concludes with the last three pieces of the suit of armor that believers are to wear in this world of warfare. Having already girded our loins, having already putting, put on the breastplate, having already shod our feet with the necessary spiritual footwear, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith, right? In ancient wars, men usually had two types of shields to choose from. Even in the Bible, they distinguish between two types of shields, two types of swords. You can see this in the Bible when it talks about uh, wars and battles and things like this, and even in the New Testament, right here. Uh, they both of which had specific purposes. Uh, a soldier could use a smaller shield, which in the Bible is called a buckler. Um, uh, it, you can see this in Ezekiel twenty three twenty four, um, and then alongside that verse was a large shield. Pick up your buckler and your shield. Right, he's talking about two different kinds of shields, and the little shield was geared towards hand to hand combat, sword fights. Right, it's uh, it's maybe two feet, two feet. Uh, wide, very small, maneuverable, some leather maybe strapped around your forearm. Uh, it's something that you could wear uh, on your forearm. The other was a door-like full-body shield. Uh, it's often used on the front lines of battle and had the ability to provide protection uh, for one's whole body against airborne weapons like arrows spears, right, catapults, things being thrown at you. The larger, this larger shield in the Greek is called thurios. And thura, thura, it means door. It's a door-like shield. Should I write that? This is uh, a transliteration, so thurios, this word, means door. <clears throat> and actually, and so that, that, that shield is the one in the context. Not the little shield, but the big shield. The full-body, door-like shield. I even have a picture. This is next level. I don't, know if you can, I don't even know if you can see it. But it's, you can stick it in the ground and put your whole weight behind it. Right? You see that? I haven't seen it. I, but I'm, I'm assuming. I've seen a lot of war movies. But yeah, it's, uh, it's something that you would really protect your whole army and you'd walk out and get closer, allow them to shoot all their arrows and everything. And you can stand firm with this shield, full body shield. And you can see the picture Paul is trying to paint from this. <clears throat> it can provide a lot of protection. Think about the damage that could be done without that shield, 
right? Against these arrows and things like that. You're going to have a hard time covering up your body with this tiny shield on your forearm. You need to take the door-like full-body shield. And this shield is likened to faith. It is a shield of faith, right? Just to get us going in the right direction, I wanted to distinguish between the two main categories of faith in the New Testament. We see faith not just as trust, right? Um, but one type of faith is a body of doctrine, right? You can turn to Ephesians 4.13, maybe back just a page. And it says that God has gifted the church with teachers for her edification until we all attain to the unity of the faith. As well as 1 Timothy 4.1, I can read that to you. But the Spirit explicitly says, that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, right? This is not talking about necessarily falling away from their faith in Christ, but they will fall away from the faith, the Christian beliefs, the, the body of doctrine that uh, Christianity uh, envelops. Another kind of faith is basic trust that we, that we have in God, right? It's a faith that is initiated by the new birth, Uh, The faith that believers daily exercise in order to continually receive every blessing that Christ purchased for them by his own blood. It's the kind of faith that believes God exists and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This is the faith that we see that the just or righteous shall live by faith, right? And so every person doesn't matter who you are, lives by some kind of faith in something, right? And it's not always bad. Not always bad. What are some things that we daily put trust in? Seatbelt. That's a great, I need to write that down. That's good. Some of us don't, and you should. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> some of you are like, I don't even trust that, you know. I don't. Did you say something? I said family. Family, man. I, I put that, that's right. Like your job security. Your money, that's right. I mean, the people who carry, who, who you give your money to, like banks, you trust them, right? Uh, babysitters with your children. Um, pastors with your soul. Doctors with your physical well-being. Food, right? The, you're, you're, you're hoping that food will help you to get healthy, to keep you alive, to nourish you. Airplanes, you know what I'm saying? Um, you do you 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 put your life in the trust in the hands of other people all the time, right? Not always bad, right? A general confidence in these things is good, right? Where you're obsessed with them is bad. Um, and and I would say the Lord has made the earth in such a way; He is sustaining it in such a way as to support human existence, right? If you wouldn't be able, if you couldn't trust anything, life would not be livable. Right? If you had doubt in everything, I mean, there's nothing you could trust in. Life would truly be livable. However, the things of this earth are far from perfect. They expire, they break down. One day, everything as you know it will pass away. Your trust in those things is temporary. It's, it's just as long as they last. And, and, and then it's gone. That being said, your faith in something is only as reliable and trustworthy as the object of your faith right? What you're placing your faith in. And so as a Christian, how do you know that your faith will overcome the world? Because the object of your faith has overcome the world, 
right? Faith is not trust in faith, right? Faith trusts Christ, right? We can overcome the world, right? Your faith overcomes the world. It's the object of your faith that has overcome the world. That's why you can overcome the world, right? And so your trust in God is infinitely more significant than any lower trinket that this perishing world can provide, right? Cars and fast food might save you time, but none of these things will ever save your soul, right? Our eternal God will outlast time. We must put our faith in him. Uh, You can pull from the everlasting resources of God and they will never run out, right? They will never break down. They will never fail you, but always and constantly leave you satisfied and full. God has the ability to do that, and none of the things in this world can, right? And so our hearts are not to be wrapped around the things of this world, but the things of that world, right? Where, as Jonathan Edwards says this, he says, The things of that world where the glorious excellencies and the beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints, And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The eyes of our faith are looking to Christ with a desire to enjoy him forever. And let me know if you have any questions. And so we look forward to something incredible, my friends. Are your eyes looking by faith with the hope that you will enjoy Christ forever? And so we are to take up the shield of faith with which, he says, you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. I have a lot of content that I wanted to try to get through today, so I apologize. if I'm usually really interactive, and I want to ask a lot of questions. So uh, if you have something, please uh, just yell it out or raise your hand. But... He says that we'll be, we will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows, right? The missiles or the darts, right? These things can also refer to uh, kind of uh, airborne or uh, like spears or javelin, uh, something that is thrown, something that is shot, uh, crossbow, bow and arrow, things like that. And it describes a nasty concoction, a flaming arrow. Describes a nasty concoction of taking the tip of one of those things and wrapping it with cloth. You've probably seen this in an army movie or something like that. They take the tip of an arrow, wrap it in cloth, and usually they would dip it in pitch, right? Pitch is a tar. Um, God told Noah to use pitch. Do you remember what he, what he was using pitch for? Seal up the ark, right? It's, it's something that's good for sealing cracks in boats, right? To keep something uh, waterproof, uh, and it's also incredibly flammable and is able to keep things alive. People use pitch for, for, their, for their torches. And so what better way to use this thing that's incredibly flammable to put it on the edge of your arrow and to shoot it at your enemies? And that's really what they're doing. That This is really what this describes. Yes, brother? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm going to. No problem. No problem. I'm going to get to that. You're, you, you beat me just a couple points. Right? 
So some of the only ways to extinguish burning or flaming arrows was to douse one's clothes, right? Or one's shield in water or vinegar, milk or something like that. And this is what they would do before war to make their bodies and their shields more resistant to fire. So most shields would be made of wood or metal and they'd be wrapped in leather or or something like animal hide. And then they would then soak their shields in, in one of these elements. And upon the incoming flaming arrow... They could lift their shield and extinguish the arrow because they, their, their shields were more resistant to fire. Does that make sense? And so in the same manner, right, when we lift our shield of faith, we will extinguish the fire and intensity of the enemy's flaming arrows. The same instructions are given in 1 Peter 5. You can turn with me if you'd like to. Um, can someone read 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 for me? Whoever gets there. Julio? Go ahead. Eight through nine. Amen. So it is the position is the possession and exercise. Uh, uh, of a determined, unwavering faith. Stand firm in your faith. Be determined, unwavered in your faith. That enables believers to resist and stand firm against the assaults of the devil. And so now concerning the flaming arrows, kind of what you're saying, I wanted to get into that. And I believe in this context, they're primarily primarily, uh, temptations that can mask themselves in all kinds of ways. Um, We've kind of talked about this a little bit in prior lessons but what kind of temptations could the devil press upon believers in spiritual warfare? What kind of temptations? Like worry. worry, right? Like unrighteous anxiety, things like that. I was thinking of essentially what Jesus went through. Those same kind of temptations could be hurled at us to either escape throwing ourselves off of a bridge or something like that to find the world's way out by hmm. ultimately turning something into bread that should have never been bread by us doing something illegal. Oh, that's right. That's right. Something that was meant for good and we ultimately make it bad because we're using, a, using it for our legal means. Right. Amen. Amen. Anything else? Just uh, it, it can also tempt you to put your pride in, you know, to take your pride and you have strength in yourself. To trust yourself? In your own resources? Is that what you're going to say, Julio? Amen. Dishonoring the word of God. Huh? Dishonoring or abusing the word of God. Oh, amen. Amen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is satanic. That is devilish. It really is. That's what, that's what the devil did to Satan. Right? He doesn't want us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, or to Jesus. Thank you. At least I didn't say the other way around. That's right. That's what the devil did to Jesus. He didn't use the word of God rightly, right? But to trick him, to accuse him, as, as you know, as, uh, as even some of the Pharisees did to Jesus, they came and their it wasn't to it wasn't it wasn't for righteousness' sake, but it was to try to throw him off balance, to try to uh, tempt him into into saying the wrong thing or to try to trick him. And so, whatever opposes God's will. Whatever opposes godliness, untruthfulness, he's the father of lies. So uh, lying is, 
is, is a way that Satan can tempt us. Being unfaithful, right? Touching uh, your, un, your unbelief, your infidelity, right? Your faithfulness to God, one of the fruit of the Spirit, your loyalty to Him, greed, covetousness, pride, doubt, despair, right? Ultimately, the devil wants us to shift our trust from God to himself, to, to start giving credit to some of the things that he's saying. Maybe the devil is right. Right? I think that's what we see in the garden. So to do this, the devil is going to appeal to our flesh. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, right? The self-seeking, ambitious heart of, of me-centered desires to, be, to, to, to satisfy our sinful desires, to be glorified among men, to be the center of attention, uh, all of these different things. Everything that is consistent with self-denial and godly humility, right? Satan wants to puff you up and sift you like wheat, right? Julio. Absolutely. That's what happened in the garden, right? He knows that when you eat it, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And it's something that we display in our own pride. It really is. Somebody else have a question? Yeah, I think, Answer. Uh, this is balance because um, you know the text is calling us to extinguish right the satanic um, you know things that are being thrown at us. But the means of how it's done is through the shield of faith, right? If we don't have the shield, we can't fight anything in our own power. Right. The shield of faith. If you're not constantly exercising that, you'll be constantly falling. And so Jesus is going to hit on your discontentment in Christ, right? He's going to he's going to hit on your dissatisfaction, uh, where and where 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 you're going to display a lot of ungratefulness in the things that you have, right? When Satan went to uh, went to Eve, he didn't he wasn't harping on all the things that God had allowed them to eat from. Wow, look at everything that God has given you, right? He said, look at what God has not given you, and there's a problem with that. That he's holding something from you. Didn't he give you dominion? Aren't you in charge of everything? And God told you no to that tree. Aren't you the keeper of the garden? He's keeping it from you. He's withholding something with, from you. Right? There's a problem with God. Right? Um, uh, Sister Kim? I was going to say, too, that, um, you know, we talk about temptation. And, you know, it's not necessarily always going to be a physical temptation in that as Christians need to be more guarded in our mind, basically in our thoughts. Sure. We could take advantage of that, you know, as if we're exempt, Mm -hmm. and not be sensitive to just our mere thoughts, you know? Even if if we entertain the idea, entertain that sin, entertain, you know, um, just even who you were before Christ, your thoughts going back to that, I mean, those are things that we really need to take captive and... Mm. And repent and extinguish it Amen. right then and there. Yeah. And I know this is really corny, but and <laughs> I'm gonna use I, I don't listen to Beth Moore anymore, but years and years ago Amen. when I was a baby Christ, I was <laughs> doing a Bible study through her. Hey, by God's grace I was saved. God uses God uses some of that. That's right. There was one thing that That's right. in my mind um, that if you once it enters your thoughts and you do not you know, temper that and turn it over to the Lord, 
it can result into the physical action of that sin. Kind of like David, right? He thought of this, this what's her name, Bathsheba in his mind. That's right. And he acted it out. Right. So, you know, even our mere thoughts, we need to be sensitive to that as if it's actually physical. Amen. Amen. We're, we're definitely hold, held accountable for our thought life, things that we say, things that we do. You know, you see, you see one of these temptations. I think you, I think were you saying it, but with Jesus, somebody, Matthew four. <laughs> the Lord knows who said it. Okay, Matthew four. Go to Matthew four really fast. This is such a great example of Christ. So it's not an indicator of maturity, right? We talked about that with. When, when we were talking about truth, I think. It's not an indicator of maturity if you're not battling. I got no battles, you know. I'm beyond battles. You know, the, Satan doesn't come after me anymore, right? Right? That's, that's, they're coming after Jesus, right? Jesus is having spiritual warfare. Maturity, righteousness is not an indicator of maturity. The most righteous man in the world had spiritual warfare. He had opposition. If you're not having opposition, far from being something that's going well with you, something's going wrong with you right? You're losing. And we see a similar, we see, a, we, see, um, we see temptation, we see Christ fighting temptation um, in the wilderness, doing, right, came to fulfill all righteousness. The first Adam failed to do that. The second Adam came to fulfill that, even in the midst of temptation. And so we read in verse 1 that Jesus was led, and this is Matthew 4, verse 1, he was led by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus is being led into the wilderness to be tested, right? To be tested, to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted, this is Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. He then became hungry, and so Satan had perceived this, he had perceived this, uh, this something of a, maybe a weakness in Jesus' flesh, right? A perceived weakness of, in Jesus' flesh, like hunger, than he, that, he could take, that he could take advantage of. And then it says, He came to him, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Right? You understand that temptation? It's pretty incredible what Satan comes and says and tempts Jesus. It's as if he said this essentially. Look at you, Jesus. Look at the way you're being treated by the Father. You're miserable, right? You're hungry. You are God's beloved and royal son, right? You deserve better than this. You should not lack anything. Right? You're God's son. And here you are, starving in a wilderness. No one knows who you are. Right? Is this the wonderful plan that God has for your life? To put it in modern times? Right? So much for the gospel, or the prosperity gospel. Right? You're in the middle of nowhere. No one knows you. And God's only son, his only begotten son, is starving of food. Right? And he says that God is obviously basically not for you, right? Essentially, God is not for you, but I am. You should take what's yours. You should eat some bread, right? And satisfy your hunger. 
And so the devil wants us to distrust God, but we have to respond by faith, by taking up the shield of faith, and by contradicting the lies of Satan by the word of God, where, it's, where, where Jesus answered, but he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Right? We're living by the will of God. I'll eat when God wants me to eat. Right? We must extinguish the fiery arrows by the shield of faith. And I have to get to some of this. I have to skip. Man, I have so much, so much good information here. Um, okay. Yes. Right. The word. That's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, agree. Amen. 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 Verse 17a says this, And take up the helmet of salvation. Here I believe Isaiah, uh, I believe Paul is drawing on the imagery of God in Isaiah. Right? I think Brian had mentioned this last time where the breastplate of righteousness is also mentioned where God is basically a divine warrior depicted as a divine warrior going out to defend his people as well as to conquer and repay his enemies according to their deeds. Isaiah fifty nine seventeen says this, and he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And so the link being made in Ephesians with the armor of God is, this one scholar has put it, that God not only fights for his people, but he makes available and imparts his divine resources to his people so they, they can directly engage their supernatural enemies. And so notice this, though, that the reference to take up the helmet of salvation is to believers. It's not a reference to initial salvation. It's not aimed at the unconverted. This verse is written to this church, and by extension, it's written to believers. And so it's aimed at believers. It's talking about salvation as a present salva- it's a it's a present possession and a future certainty, right? And those are two things that I want to expound on today. I'm really hoping we have time. But before we do that, I wanted us to bear in mind that all the pieces of the Christian's armor correspond to and counter the various attacks and plots that Satan uses against them, right? The breastplate covers the vital organs of life. The helmet is going to protect your head, your mind, your knowledge, your understanding, right? The helmet of salvation uh, is, is very closely related to the gospel of peace. And I think that is, is for a good reason. They are concerned with the same reality, which should be very telling. Both of these, uh, both of these pieces of armor are deadly crucial. If God basically has to mention them twice, it should be telling something to us, right? And I believe, I, I believe that if, if, if God wanted to say two things to us concerning the armor that we are to put on, he would say this. Number one, do not forget who you are in Christ. Gospel of peace, remember we talked about. And number two, do not forget who you are in Christ. Right? And from this we can gather that there is nothing that Satan wants to do more than to strip the believer of their peace with God and their security and confidence of Christ's finished work on their behalf. Right? Satan is most successful 
when we allow him to litter our minds with doubts about God's word, as, as well as doubts regarding uh, our own salvation, who we are in Christ, right? Touching the very identity of our relationship with him. And there is nothing that will discourage or hinder a Christian more than the war in their mind on whether or not they're saved, on whether or not they can trust God, uh, tr- trust what God says concerning them. Right? Doubt will dull every grace that that God has given believers to enjoy. It it will. You know, I just want to add what you said about um, our identity in Christ. Like, because when Satan tempted Jesus, and he would go to him, he said, um, the word he said, if you are the Son of God. That's right. Amen. Right. Amen. Amen. Jesus had, he had solid rock security on who he was, right? Because he did, we should. Yes, brother. I was thinking of uh, Romans 8, 31, the end of the chapter, verse 39, about who can separate us from the world of God. Amen. And um, the reminder that Paul is giving to them, that essentially he told them that we were the conquerors. Um, And he even ends it saying that for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he said, remembering who we are in Christ. Amen. Uh, Amen. Take up the helmet of salvation. A doubting Christian will never have rock-solid certainty about their eternal destiny. Right? Doubt, if, if doubt is not quickly destroyed by faith, it will hang over everything like a gray sky, right? Doubt will murder peace. It absolutely will. And so, as, as I mentioned earlier, this phrase, helmet of salvation, refers to two aspects of salvation. One of those being a present, uh, a present salvation, one that we have right now, right? I think, I think most of us would, would agree that there are really two stages or sorry, three stages, three kind of spheres of salvation, right? That we have already been saved, right? Speaking about our justification. That we are being saved, speaking about our sanctification. And that we will be saved, speaking about our glorification, right? And, and Paul, to put hope inside each and every one of us, Romans thirteen eleven says uh, that for now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe, right? So he's talking about the middle process, the middle stage of salvation, of sanctification. And so believers are called to take up their helmet of salvation. And the only way that you can do so, right, when he says take up the helmet of salvation, is that you must know for certain that it's yours, right? That you have a divine right to take it up with both hands and put it on your head with boldness, right? You can't take up the helmets of salvation if you don't know what side you're fighting on, right? And so it's imperative that believers have assurance of their salvation, that you are saved, that you are spotless, that you are blameless and fully accepted in the beloved, right? If you have a rock of doubt, uh, a rock of doubt in your shoe, you will be greatly hindered in fighting this war. Right? You will instead be at war with your own emotions, with your own thought life. Uh, and so how can you take up the helmet of salvation if you're hesitant to affirm your salvation? Right? Is the helmet of salvation yours to take? If it is, take it up. Take up the helmet of salvation. Right? 
oh, I shouldn't get into this. I had a little rant. And, and it's, it's this. Most doubts arise from confusion about doctrinal truth, right? And faulty theology. That's really where most, doubt, most doubts, it, 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 they arise from confusion, right? Um, uh, doubt is carnal. Doubt is sinful. Are we to have mercy on those who doubt? We are, right? That doesn't mean it's not right, though. doesn't mean it's not wrong, sorry. Doubt is sinful. Doubt, doubt is not of the flesh. It's not of faith, right? It's the opposite. It's, well, it's, it's almost. It's kind of, it's, doubt is kind of hanging in the middle. You don't really know uh, if you are strongly, if you have a strong conviction about where you stand with Christ. It's not unbelief, but it's not faith, right? And doubt doesn't look out. Doubt looks in. Uh, and Satan is waiting to pounce on those who are constantly looking to themselves for strength and deliverance, right? If your theology is man-centered, if you play a key role in the attainment uh, of your final salvation, right? No wonder you're filled with doubt, right? Your doubt's valid if you're looking to yourself. It's valid doubt, right? Uh, it, it means that you trust yourself. And if your own sin has taught you anything, it's that you should not trust yourself, right? If Arminian theology were true, I would have no choice but to believe it. But it's not true, and I'm thankful for that, right? I'm thankful that I'm not the key, right, to unlock a potential salvation, right? Forget it. If you had the key, you couldn't unlock it, right? Throw away the key. You couldn't use it if you had it, right? And so God didn't make life possible, right? God didn't make eternal life possible through Christ, but the Bible says that God made us alive together with Christ, right? And the work of Jesus Christ didn't just make us redeemable, right? Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us. This is something that Jesus Christ did, my friends. And if you didn't have anything to do with your first birth, the Bible echoes the same truth. You didn't have anything to do with your second birth, your rebirth, your justification, your reconciliation, your, rest of, your, your restoration, right? Your adoption. You don't have uh, any work. You don't have, you, you can't add, you don't have any merit, right? The entirety of salvation is not based on you right? It's based on Christ and is secured by his work of redemption, right? It's the sovereign hand of God that puts you in Christ, and you shouldn't doubt because it's the sovereign hand of God who will keep you in Christ, right? And if you're assured of of your salvation, if you're saved, you should be assured of your salvation. It was a security. It was hope that Christ purchased for you on the cross. You should put the helmet on with boldness, right? Not only is it your right, but it's also a promise that is yours. The helmet of salvation, right? Not only does the helmet of salvation assure us of present victory, but it also assures us of final victory. Salvation is yours, right? You, you're, you're, you're in the army of the Lord. You're in the army of the king, and he has, he has already defeated these great battles, and because we are in him, the salvation is also ours. That's why First Thessalonians 5.8 says, he calls the helmet the hope of salvation, the, of, of final salvation. As, as, as one theologian put it, the helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle will, uh, with Satan will not last forever and we will be victorious in the end. 
We are not in a race we can lose. Right? We are not in a race we can lose. And that should give you some peace, right? Something to glory in. That you're not in a losing battle, right? Satan is not sovereign over the king of kings, right? But God is ultimately sovereign over every person. As you are in the hand of God, you, as, your, as your life is hid with Christ in God, so Satan is in the hand of God, right? He's that small compared to God. He's a great enemy compared to us. He's no match compared to the king of kings. We're in his army. And he has already defeated Satan and sin and death. Let's try to get to this, uh, this, this last section here. I'm going to try to get through it. I don't want to butcher it, but it's so good. Uh, Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians. It says this. Not only take up the the helmet of salvation, uh, right? But also the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Not only must we be on the defensive against Satan's attacks to deceive and to cause us to stumble, but we must also be on the offensive spiritually against the powers of darkness as as soldiers in the lord's army we are to use this weapon both defensively and offensively right the type of sword mentioned in this verse is called the makaira right it was a weapon used in hand-to-hand combat just like the short shield it was a short sword right it was uh it, it was not like uh it was not like uh, this broadsword, double-edged broadsword that people would use to split someone's skull open, but it was a short sword, probably, uh, I think it's uh, maybe 16, 6 to eight, 18 inches long, kind of a shorter sword, right, as opposed to a bigger sword. And so the sword of the Spirit, meaning the sword has its divine origin in the Spirit. The Spirit produces the sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. It is God the Spirit that gives the Word or the sword, which is identified with the word of God, uh, it, it, he gives the word its razor-sharp edge, as we will see, its life and power and effectiveness. And you can see this in Hebrews 4.12, where it says this, For the word of God is living. The word of God is active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and, pierce, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, right? So the word of God has an incredibly sword-like ability to cut through and penetrate to the very core of who you are, right? In order to pass judgment on your intentions, right? To judge your thoughts, And so not only are we to search and read the word, but the word is going to search and read us as we use it, as we read it. And I want to ask you this question. Brethren, what kind of value do you put on the Bible? What significance does it play in your spiritual life? Right? Is it just like any other book? Thomas Guthrie, a Scottish pastor of the 1800s, once said this, that the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, 
a mine of exhaustless wealth. It is a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, speaking spiritually, a medicine for every malady and a balm for every womb. And then he says, rob us of our Bible and our sky has lost its sun. (laughs) Rob me of my, take my Bible from me and life will cease to exist if I don't have the word of God. Is that how you describe the importance? I, I, on my best day, I don't, uh, that's, you know what I'm saying? I hope we do. I hope that we, I hope that we value the Bible as as God's word is the most important thing in our life, right? As we will see, um, and I wanted to go through this. We have a little bit of time here. Uh, what do we know about the word of God? I want to ask you that. What do, what do we know about the word of God? What is it for? How do we use it? What would you say? It's truth. It's inerrant, right? Without error. It's infallible, completely trustworthy. God breathed. God God is the author of that word, right? He he is the source of every true prophetic spoken utterance. It's sufficient. Amen. That's right. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. It's authoritative. How many verses? <laughs> right? It's authoritative, right? Isaiah said, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Right? It's authoritative. It's a source of all joy. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are those. Right? The word of God is the source of spiritual life. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, right? Corruptible, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. That's how you were saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This message of the gospel through the word of God. The word of God is a source of spiritual growth. Where it says, likewise, newborn babes, 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3, we are called to long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Right? So we're to use this sword both defensively and offensively. And the only way that you can be successful in your Christian life is if you use it accurately. You have to know how to use it, right? Uh, you have to understand it. You have to, you have to wield that sword with precision if you're going to counter the blows of Satan, the, the attacks of Satan. You have to know how to use it skillfully. I think everyone would, would agree with that, right? If you haven't been trained in the sword, you will not do well in battle. You will walk away ashamed, right? I think if you're an evangelist, you can testify to that. You know what I'm saying? Many a battle you walked away full of shame because you didn't know the word. You know what I'm saying? You were unprepared. You couldn't find that verse. You know what I'm saying? Uh, or uh, you, you didn't know how to respond to some objection, right? That was in the Bible, but you couldn't find it. You, you weren't prepared and what, what, and what did that cause, right? It caused shame. It, it caused a, 
I'm gonna, hopefully it caused, I'm going to go home and read my Bible. I'm going to find that answer. I'm going to tuck it away in my mind. I'm going to be ready. As 2 Timothy 2.15 says, right? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Right? Accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. And I think that's probably all we have time for today. Um, I hope you believe these things. I hope these things have helped you as we've gone through the armor of God. And there's another verse here. And I, I really like this verse. Because we see how powerful the word of God is. Oftentimes... Sometimes, maybe, we don't see its power, right? I read the Word of God, and I'm tired. I want to go back to sleep, you know? I just, I can't focus, you know, if you're being honest with yourself. I, I, like, some days you have great, the, the Lord has just blessed you with great measures of stamina, where the Spirit has given you illumination. And there's other days where, like, you're, you're, it's hard for you to focus. And I struggle with this. Some of you can probably testify to that but i really like i really like what isaiah 55:11 says which says that when the word of god goes forth from the mouth of the lord it never returns void right it always accomplishes what the lord wants it to accomplish and first thessalonians 2:13 says this uh, speaking about god's will for his word to accomplish what he desires. He says this, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you. I mean, so you might not even, sometimes you, I don't think you'll be able to feel or, or grasp the fact that God's word is working in you. Even when I teach this message to you, you, you might be tired, but I guarantee if you are listening, if you're, if you're attentive to the things that I'm saying, God's, God's word is performing its work in you. It's performing its, word, its work in you, right? The word of God is living. It's active, Right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Do we believe that? And do you still have faith to believe that the word of God is working in you? That the word of God still has power? That the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, will help you in spiritual war that believers are called to fight? And that's what I would say to you as as we just kind of end this lesson and go to worship that all of these pieces of armor that we're talking about are absolutely necessary are, and are the only means that you have to stand firm against the enemy in spiritual warfare. So let's go to worship.